Good morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from uh, Matthew 16, 13 through 8 through 19. So if you could turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And uh, as we turn there, let me pray for us uh, before we read God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you uh, this morning again to hear from you to hear and to understand, to believe. We come to see our Savior more clearly and what he has done for us. We come to rest more fully in your grace, to understand your plan uh, that you made from before the foundation of the world and have been working out ever since, your plan which culminated in sending your son Jesus. Father, help us to see you more clearly to trust in you more fully. Pour out your spirit on us right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, there are uh, lots of questions in the Christian life. There are questions about why, why do we believe what we believe? Uh, why do we do what we do? Uh, why do we focus so much on the Bible? Uh, what is, why is the church so important? Uh, who belongs to the church? Who doesn't belong to the church? Uh, what are the criteria for that? There are questions about our beliefs, questions about our practices, questions about our community. Interestingly, many, many of those questions are addressed in one way or another in the few verses that are in front of us this morning. In some ways, these verses are, are one of the high points of the Gospel of Matthew so far, second only to the, the, what, what we call the Great Commission, which is at the end of Matthew in Matthew 28. Uh, so I, do wanna, I just want to jump right into these verses this morning. It, it'll be a little bit more uh, teaching than preaching this morning, if that uh, distinction makes sense. And uh, I should say also, there are a lot of things in these verses that have been debated for 500 years or so. Uh, We're not going to solve all of those debates this morning, I'm sorry, Uh, but we will uh, do our best to understand these verses a little bit better, hopefully, than we did when we came in. Uh, Our outline is on the back of the bulletin. You can see it there. Uh, We're going to talk about the rock, uh, the assembly, the key, and the cord. First, we'll talk about the rock. We talked about this a little bit last week, you may remember, but we're going to look at it again. So let me just read again, 13 through 17. Uh, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
But he, Jesus, said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter, Peter proclaims Jesus to be the Christ. Uh, Amidst all the speculations of the crowds, uh, these 12 followers of Jesus, they alone seem to get it right. They know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Now, the Messiah was uh, the promised king of Israel uh, who was to come to restore Israel, to defeat her enemies, and to sit on the throne of David forever. That's who Peter says Jesus is. And this thought that didn't come to Peter out of his own imagination. It wasn't that he was somehow alone, smart enough to figure it out and put the pieces together. Jesus says this was revealed to him from God the Father. It came from God. That's how Peter could figure this out. But then Jesus makes this startling statement in in verse 18. He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, uh, like I said a moment ago, there's a lot of debate uh, about what Jesus is saying here. And uh, the main question is, what is the rock that Jesus is talking about? Jesus says he's going to build his church on the rock. What is that rock? That's the big question. And uh, there are a couple of interpretations that have been given. I went over a couple last week. I'm going to go back over them and, and add one more, actually. There are three that people often, three conclusions people often come to. The first is that Peter himself is the rock. Right? Jesus says, you are Peter, and uh, Peter means rock. It's Greek for rock, and Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And so some people say, clearly Jesus is saying, Peter is the rock upon which the church is built. Second interpretation or possibility is that Peter's confession is the rock. You know, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, and in light of that, Jesus makes this statement. Those who uh, advocate this view point out that the word Peter, Petros in Greek, is different from the word rock that Jesus uses afterwards, which is Petra in Greek. Petra, like the 80s Christian rock band for anybody who remembers that. Petra means bedrock. Petros means pebble. So Jesus is saying, you, Peter, a pebble, but on the bedrock of your confession, I will build my church. Uh, The the slight weakness of that is that Petros and Petra can be used as synonyms, though they can have distinct meanings, so it depends on which way you take it in this particular verse. Uh, There's a third interpretation, which is that the rock is Jesus himself. Uh, Again, that that makes use of the word difference between Petros and Petra. It also makes use of the broader context of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, because Jesus, you may remember earlier, compares his word to the rock in Matthew chapter 7, Uh, But later in Matthew, in Matthew 21, Jesus himself is called the stone that the builders rejected that becomes the cornerstone. This also, this understanding that Jesus himself is the rock also makes use, actually, of of Peter's teaching later. Uh, Later on, Peter writes a letter, uh, the letter uh, of 1 Peter, and in that letter, he identifies Jesus as the living stone, which is the cornerstone of the church, okay? So Peter himself, when he starts talking about the rock. He has no delusions that he himself is the stone, um, but he points to Jesus. Jesus is clearly called in Scripture in multiple places the cornerstone of the church. Now, 
I actually think that all three interpretations have some truth and validity to them, and you have to actually take them together. Uh, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, and in response to that, Jesus confesses Peter. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, the rock of Peter's confession, right, is, is the rock is Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. Not the confession itself, but the confession of Peter, the apostle. Apostle, by the way, uh, means one who has been sent out. Uh, Jesus appointed 12 of his disciples, 12 of his followers, to be apostles, to be official delegates. And so uh, when we talk about the apostles, we mean those official delegates of Jesus, those, those 12 people that Jesus himself sent out. And uh, when we talk about apostolic teaching or the apostolic church, as we confessed earlier in the, the Nicene Creed, you may remember we said we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. When we say that, what we mean is we're talking about the teaching of the apostles or the church as it's founded on the teaching of the apostles. That's what we're saying when we say we believe in the apostolic church. We believe in the church founded on the teaching of the apostles. And it's the apostles... You may remember as a whole that Paul says later in Ephesians are the foundation of the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read it earlier. Uh, We we read that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there both of those two are put together, Jesus and the apostles being the foundation of the church. And so when Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, He's saying that on the apostolic confession of Jesus as the Christ, right? The apostles who proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. On that proclamation, Jesus would build his church. All three are really necessary, though, right? I mean, Peter is the rock because he's an apostle, an official delegate of Jesus. He's the one who's doing the confessing. Uh, Peter's confession is the rock because it's this confession that Jesus will use to build his church. And, of course, Jesus is the rock because the confession is about him, him as the Christ. All three are necessary. If you leave out any of them, you're you're missing a key piece, right? If you leave out Jesus as the the centerpiece of the confession, then maybe the apostles are building something, but they're not building Jesus' church. Uh, If you leave out the confession, right, then they're not doing anything. They're not going to build anything. They're no different from an inanimate object if they're not confessing Jesus, but if you leave out the fact that these are the apostles doing the confession, uh, then, then what you're doing is saying we have a message that doesn't necessarily have Jesus' authority behind it because he gave his message to his apostles and said, go spread this message. So we need to hold all three of these together. The rock is the apostolic confession of Jesus as the Christ. Uh, now, I should point out here uh, just because this is part of the discussions about these verses, there is clearly no mention here or elsewhere of the idea of apostolic succession, right? Which is the idea, there's no mention that there will be people who take up this role of the apostles after their death. Rather, in fact, um, Paul, changing the metaphor a little bit, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul says there's only one foundation, the apostolic confession of Jesus as the Christ, that's it, and no other can be laid but that. 
And in fact, the apostles wrote their testimony down in the New Testament so we would have it for all time, right? We don't need new apostles because we have the New Testament. And so Peter, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, he says that he writes his letter in 2 Peter 1 so that after he dies, we will be able to remember his teaching at any time. So Peter actually says, here's the reason I'm writing this down, 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, I'm writing it down so that after I die, you can remember what I taught. Which means, of course, then another way we could define the rock in light of the progress of redemptive history, in light of the writing of the New Testament and the death of the apostles, if, if uh, it is the confession of the apostles in the Bible, in the New Testament. That's the continuing foundation of the church. Uh, the rock is the apostles, the, the, the apostolic confession of Christ found in Scripture. Is that confusing? I hope that's not confusing. The apostolic confession of Christ found in Scripture. Right? This message that was given to the apostles that they wrote down for us. That is the rock. So much for the rock. Nobody's gotten up and left yet, except my wife. So I, I, I feel okay about that. I think she'll come back. Um, okay, so much for the rock. But Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. So this moves us to the assembly, to the church. The word church means assembly or gathering. And lest Jesus' metaphorical language here confuse us, the word church does not refer to a building. It's the way we use it sometimes, right? We talk about the church on such and such street or, or, or whatnot. But the church does not refer to a building. Though the building metaphor is often used of the church in Scripture, which is what's confusing. It's used metaphorically. So again, Paul in Ephesians 2, when he's talking about the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ being the cornerstone, right? That sounds like a building. Uh, he, he goes on to say, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He says, in him also, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul uses all kinds of building language in those couple of verses uh, to talk about the church. He talks about it being built. He talks about its foundation. He talks about its cornerstone. He talks about it as a temple and a building, right, and a dwelling place. But it's all being used metaphorically to talk about the church. The church is not a building. The church is the people who are gathered together. Now, I, I want to talk about translations for a minute here, so bear with me. Uh, I don't normally talk about Greek words or, or translations of words, but I, I feel like it's helpful here. Hopefully it'll be helpful. You can tell me afterwards if it wasn't helpful. That's fine. Uh, but the Greek word, ekklesia, right, ekklesia, is, uh, is translated church, and it means assembly or gathering, what the word means, assembly or gathering. Uh, the Hebrew equivalent uh, is the word kahal, which also means assembly or gathering. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek in what we call the Septuagint, kahal, assembly, was most often translated ekklesia, assembly. So kahal, we have three words that we're dealing with, kahal in the Old Testament, ekklesia in the New Testament, and the word church or assembly, gathering. But the translation of ecclesia is not consistent, right? So ecclesia, 108 times it's translated church in the New Testament. Uh, but in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen talks about Moses 
in the ecclesia at Sinai. But it's not translated Moses in the church at Sinai. It's translated Moses in the congregation at Sinai, right? Okay. Uh, Hebrews 12.23 says that we have come to the ecclesia of the firstborn in heaven, which is not translated the church of the firstborn in heaven, but the assembly of the firstborn in heaven. In the Greek translation of Deuteronomy, Moses talks about the day of the ecclesia, meaning the day they gathered at Mount Sinai, but it's not translated the day of the church, but the day of the assembly in English. Okay, why am I going over this odd translation record of the word ecclesia? You may be wondering. And the reason is because the way the word is translated affects our understanding of the biblical text and our theology of the church. See, in the Old Testament, we read of the assembly. In the New Testament, we read of the church. And so we assume we have this radical discontinuity. When we come to this passage in Matthew, we find the word church for the first time in our English Bibles, and we hear Jesus say he is going to build his church, and so we assume that Jesus is starting something totally and completely new. But Jesus had an ecclesia, a gathering, an assembly, a church, back at Sinai. Think, think about this uh, analogy, right? Imagine a computer company, a computer company founded in 1976, and it announces in the 2000s that it will begin building itself on, not on computers alone, but on mobile computing devices like the iPod and the iPhone. And from there, it goes on to become the world's second largest information technology company. I won't name that company, right? But uh, you, you wouldn't say that this company began in 2007 with the invention of the iPhone. You would say that it took a radically new focus around a radically new product, but it didn't begin there. It began back in 1976, right? So when Jesus announces to Peter that on this rock he will build his church, it doesn't mean, actually, that he is going to start something totally new. It does mean that he is going to do something totally new, because his assembly, his gathering, his church is no longer going to be centered on Jerusalem or centered on the temple or centered on the law, but it's going to be centered on the confession of Jesus as the Messiah. See, Jesus is not talking here about the formation of the people of God around him, but the reformation of the people of God around him. You see, there's this theme in the Old Testament about the gathering and the scattering and the remnant of God's people, right? So God gathers his people to himself like sheep to a shepherd, uh, but judgment happens and they are scattered among the nations and they go all over the place, but then a remnant remains and God regathers his people around himself. Jesus is announcing here that he will regather the remnant around the apostolic confession of Peter and his fellow apostles. Jesus is the good shepherd who has come to gather the scattered sheep of Israel around himself. That's what he's saying here. Now, Jesus goes on to say that the gates of hell will not prevail against this gathering. And uh, we have to understand hell uh, is not uh, a place ruled by Satan as in popular mythology. Uh, if anything, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world, not the prince of Hades. But hell or Hades is the grave. It's the place of the dead. And Jesus is, is either saying that death itself will not conquer the church or that the church will conquer death. 
that the defensive system of hell, its gates, right, uh, its gates will not stand up against the church and its message. The church is going to rob death of its prey, as it were. This happens, of course, first in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, right? The grave does not hold him. But when we are gathered to Jesus, the grave will not hold us either. Jesus is here promising that the worst that comes our way, even death for his sake, will not keep us down. The church as a whole will one day rise from the dead, according to the Bible, as the bride of Christ and dwell with him forever in the new creation. So no matter what happens to his gathering in this life, right, it will last forever as we dwell with him in the new world. So Jesus is going to build his church. He's going to regather his scattered sheep. And even death itself is no match for Jesus' church. And so we have the rock, we have the assembly. And now we're going to look at the key. Look again at verses 18 and 19. Jesus continuing uh, to Peter. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this image of the keys is not unique to this part of scripture. Uh, It's found in a couple other places. It's found in Isaiah 22, which was read earlier, uh, where uh, God talks about placing the key of the house of David upon someone's shoulder. He's talking there about removing some false rulers and appointing a good ruler over God's people by placing the key of the house of David upon their shoulder. Luke 11, uh, Jesus says the teachers of the law take away the key of knowledge. Revelation 1, Jesus says that he himself has the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 3, Jesus says he has the key of David. And with the possible exception of Luke 11, in all of these passages, the idea of the keys is about authority. It's about having authority over the house of David or having authority over death in Hades. And at its simplest, Jesus is saying to the apostles that he is going to give them authority. Right? If you have the keys to a building, it shows that you have some level of authority. Even if you're just the janitor, right? you have some kind of authority in that building. You have the power to lock and unlock the doors at the very least. Keys signify authority. But again, the authority of the keys in all of these passages Uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah, in Luke, in in Revelation, the, the, the authority of the keys is associated with opening and shutting doors, which is what keys do. So Jesus says of the teachers of the law in Luke 11 that they take away the key of knowledge and hinder those who are entering. Hinder those who are entering. Uh, In Revelation, Jesus claims to be the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And so for the apostles to have the keys of the kingdom is for the apostles to be able to open wide the door of the church. Now, it's interesting. uh, Jesus doesn't say he's going to give them the keys to the church. He says he's going to give them the keys of the kingdom. And, And kingdom and church are slightly different, yet inseparable concepts, right? Church is the assembly of people. That's what we just said, right? Church is about the assembly of the people. Kingdom is about the power and authority of the king. The two are distinguishable but inseparable. The the, the king rules over a gathering of people. So you have the church, the gathering, and you have the kingdom, which is the authority of the king. Uh, Because these are kind of slightly different facets of the same reality, people sometimes use them as synonyms, church and kingdom, and that's okay, but but technically they're, they're distinct. 
But here we can understand it like this, because Jesus is combining these two. He says, uh, I'm going to build my church, and I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. So we can understand it like this, that the kingdom key opens the door of the church. Again, using the metaphor of the church as a building, but <laughs> it's kind of inescapable. But the, church of the, the, the kingdom key opens the door of the church. Jesus is giving the apostles the authority or the right to welcome people into his church, into his assembly, into his community. Now, how will the apostles do that? How will they open the door to the church? Well, ultimately, it's by preaching the gospel. See, when they proclaim at Pentecost, uh, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, they are opening the doors to the church. They're saying anyone who puts their trust in Jesus can come. When they say later in Acts, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, they are opening the door to the church. And what this means is, in one sense, the keys are given uniquely to the apostles, right? They are the ones who proclaim this authoritative message. They are the ones who put it in writing for all time. Uh, it, is this, it is the message given directly to them from Jesus, right? If he hadn't given it to them, we wouldn't know it. Because if he hadn't given it to them and they hadn't written it down for all time, we would, we would be lost, right? We would have no message at all. But Jesus gave it to them and they wrote it down for all time. And yet, in another sense, this, the keys of the kingdom are given to all elders in the church, right, uh, whose job it is to proclaim Christ, to declare, as we did earlier, that, that if you've confessed your sins and believed in Jesus, that your sins are indeed forgiven. And at the same time, to tell people that if you reject Christ, the door is closed and the bolt is locked, right? It's the elder's job, elder's responsibility to decide uh, who is allowed to be a member of the church and who is not, based on the criteria laid down by the apostles. So the elders have these keys in a unique way. And yet, in still another sense, the keys are given to the whole church. Because as you tell others about Jesus, you are opening up the door to them. You have been given the power by Christ to share the apostolic message of Jesus the Messiah, crucified for our sins and risen from the dead for our forgiveness. And that message welcomes people into the church as they put their faith in him. Okay, so we've looked at the, the rock, we've looked at the assembly, we've looked at the keys, and now we're going to look at the cord. Now, I realize the passage doesn't mention the word cord, but the imagery is there in verse 19. Verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The imagery is of binding and loosing. It's of tying something up or letting it go. The question is, where does this imagery come from? Binding and loosing. Well, as best I can tell, the imagery uh, has a, a Jewish background, meaning to forbid or to permit. That is to bind or loose the conscience. So if something is forbidden, your conscience is bound. If something is permitted, your conscience is loosed, so to speak. Right? At its simplest, Jesus is saying that the apostles will have the right to declare what is forbidden or permitted in this renewed community. Every community, every society right, has some standard for what it looks like to live as a part of that community. And Jesus is saying that the apostles will have the authority to declare that standard. He's saying that the apostles make up... Don't, he's not saying... <laughs> that the apostles make up that standard, right? In fact, if you look at your footnote in the ESV, uh, if you have an ESV, maybe other Bibles might have the same footnote, but in verse 19, there's a footnote 
And in light of that footnote, the verse reads like this. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Uh, the, the verb there, it's, it's a perfect passive participle, right? <sighs> Which means uh, that the binding and loosing in heaven is prior to the apostles binding and loosing on earth. Okay, so what Jesus is promising then is that the apostle, what the apostles do on earth is reflective of what has already happened in heaven. They're not making it up, right? They are reflecting what God has already decided in heaven. God is at work through the apostles, is what is his promise, what Jesus is promising here. Now, really, this is something that we've always believed in the church, okay? Uh, Jesus is saying that the apostles, not me, not the elders, not teachers, not pastors, not bishops or popes, right? That the apostles had authority to declare what was forbidden and what was allowable in Jesus' new community. To put it differently, Jesus is saying that the teaching of the apostles will regulate the life in this new community. Again, this is really something we've always believed. Uh, Maybe you didn't realize it, but we did because we believe that the Bible regulates our faith and life. Right? The Bible, the teaching of the apostles in the scriptures regulate our faith and life. Why does it do that? Because Jesus gave his apostles authority to open the door of the church and to teach how we are to live once we're in. This means that if we want to know what to believe or how to live, we turn to the teaching of the apostles in the scripture. As Christians, you know, we, we, we frequently fall back into self-reliance, at least I do, I know, And we often flounder because we don't know what's best in life. What do I do in this situation? How do I work this thing out? But the truth of the matter is God has given us, uh, has blessed us by giving us the scriptures to guide us. He hasn't left us to our own devices. He hasn't left us to figure out everything on our own. Uh, We can turn to the teaching of the scriptures, right? Particularly both the Old Testaments, but also the New Testament, the, the teaching of the apostles found there. Uh, Now, there's another way to understand this passage, uh, this verse, actually, Um, and it's another way that that Jewish people, again, uh, use those terms historically, and it had to do with expelling or receiving people into a community. If this is the case, of course, then Jesus is simply expanding on the keys. Uh, The apostles then are given the right to declare who is and who is not a member of the church, which we've already seen. So the question is, which is it, right? Uh, Are the apostles given the right to set down what is forbidden and permitted in Jesus' church or who is expelled or received into Jesus' church? You see the difference there? Maybe? Hope? Uh, The the two, though, are actually not that far apart. And uh, with that, I finally get to the the broader context in Matthew, which I want to step back just for a minute. Um, Normally, you set the context ahead of time. I'm coming to the context at the end. It's all backwards, I know, but I, I think it works. Um, think about what has been going on in the Gospel of Matthew so far. In chapter 14, Jesus is contrasted with Herod. Herod is the bad shepherd who fed on the sheep of Israel. He uses his authority for his own good. While Jesus, later in the chapter, the good shepherd, fed the sheep of Israel. He fed about 5,000 of the sheep of Israel. He's using his authority for their good. Then we get to chapter 15, and the the religious authorities complain that Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands. See, they want to keep the disciples from eating because they don't follow the traditions. Now, Jesus, at this point, teaches 
that it's not what goes into a man from the outside that makes him unclean, but what comes out of his heart. Which really is amazingly profound. In one simple statement, Jesus declares that all people are clean outwardly and all people are unclean inwardly. Specifically, Jesus is saying that eating what was formerly unclean, right, things that were unclean, eating those things is permitted, Jesus is saying. For the Pharisees and scribes, eating with unwashed hands is forbidden. Jesus says, no, no, eating anything is permitted because it's not what comes into your body that makes you unclean. You see, the Pharisees want to bind the consciences of the disciples, not allow them to eat certain things with their hands a certain way. But Jesus is loosing their consciences, saying, go ahead and eat those things. It's not unclean because outward things are not what make you unclean. Then next we have the story of the Canaanite woman a woman who was totally unclean as to her outward condition. Jesus uh, tests his disciples a little bit to see if they've gotten the lesson about clean and unclean. And uh, he says to his disciples that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not to these Gentiles, not to this woman. Of course, they fail to get it. They don't respond, which is kind of unique for them. Uh, They're so dumbfounded, they just don't even say anything. She, on the other hand, begs for grace that she knows she doesn't deserve, and Jesus gives it to her. He shows her grace. What does this little story show us? What does it tell us? Well, it tells us that, that by permitting the disciples to eat with unwashed hands, by declaring all foods clean in that way, Jesus has redefined who is allowed to be a part of his people. She can be a part. This Canaanite, unclean Canaanite woman can be a part because it is not about outward uncleanness, but about coming to Jesus to beg for grace. Any who come and ask can have it. Grace is there for the asking, Jesus is saying. This Canaanite woman is, is allowed, right? By, by loosing the conscience of these uh, outward uh, dietary laws, Jesus is allowing others into the church that weren't allowed before. Finally, in chapter 15, Jesus heals many people and then feeds 4,000 people. And uh, that may seem like simple repetition because Jesus has healed many people before and he fed 5,000 people just a chapter earlier. So it seems like, okay, yeah, he's doing it again. I get it. But it's actually not just repetition because here the ones whom Jesus heals and feeds are Gentiles. They're Gentiles. You see that at at the very least in verse 31 because they glorify the God of Israel. Why do they glorify the, quote, God of Israel? Well, because they are not of Israel. Jesus is blessing the nations here. He's accepting the nations. He's feeding the nations. And so in chapter 4, we see Jesus feeding the sheep of Israel. Now in chapter 15, uh, he feeds the sheep of the Gentiles as well. See, Jesus is reforming and redefining his ecclesia. Jesus is the good shepherd who has come to gather the scattered sheep of Israel and the scattered sheep of the Gentiles into one flock. And he declares that outward cleanness is not a requirement for his kingdom, but a certain condition of the heart, not perfection, certainly not, because he declares everybody unclean of heart, but a looking to Jesus for grace. This is what makes someone really clean or unclean. This is what enables someone to enter in or stops them from entering if they refuse to look to Jesus. You know, uh, Ed Clowney, there's a guy named Ed Clowney, in his book on the church, he said at one point that uh, the apostles were not authorized to negotiate the terms of the gospel, but to declare the terms of the gospel, right? That was their job, to declare the terms of the gospel. And the terms that the apostles 
proclaimed and set down in the scriptures for us is that all who hear the gospel, who confess and forsake their sin, right, who trust in Jesus as the Messiah, who died and rose for the forgiveness of sins, or to put it more succinctly, those who repent and believe will be saved and be gathered to Jesus as his sheep. 